Um, so great to be here with this morning. And, and I do want to add to kind of the vision that God laid on Andrew's heart is as I prepared this this morning, I just want you to know that God's heart for this message is only blessing. It's, it's only blessing. And so as I share, we're going to go through some harder territory. But if there's ever a time that you're feeling um, that you're feeling like it's harsh or that's hard, that's on me. That's not, that's not Satan. That's on Satan. That's not God's heart. This, mo- this message this morning, it's all about calling us forward and giving us encouragement and all about vision, this incredible vision that God has for men. So I'm just going to pray that comes across in just this. And I would love for you to take out something to take notes with, because while we don't always believe that the preacher is ready to speak, we always believe that God is ready to speak. And so I'm asking you men this morning to listen for something that God either lifts you up or challenges with you to be ready this morning to receive as we go through this. Today will be our last message in what I feel has been just an outstanding series on our call to impact and to change our culture. We have seen that there are options for us as Christians. They're not good options. We could be cultural clones. We could be cultural recluses. We could be cultural complainers. None of those are for us. None of those are for us, the body of Christ. It's not an option for us. We are to be salt and light in the world, and we are to be salt and light to the world. We are to go out and to bring to culture something that only we can bring. We are cultural architects, cultural changers. Today I'm going to be talking about men and our role in our shaping our marriages, families, spheres of influence, our role in shaping creation, our role in shaping the culture we live in. I will only be talking about men today. I will not try to balance it with statements about how the power and the purpose and the passion of women. Andrew did an amazing job celebrating women, and I suggest you go back, if you weren't here, that you listen to that message. And in in Andrew's message, he left no doubt that this is not a debate about worth. This is not a conversation about worth, people. There's nothing in this about worth. It is, however, a conversation about a truth that there are differences between men and women and differences that we must embrace and push into if we're going to be cultural architects. So I start with this statement. Men, you are not granted any reason under God to believe that you are better than a woman. But you are granted every reason under God to believe, celebrate, and live in the fact that you are different than a woman. I can tell you the difference between women and man is played out in my household. And from talking to a lot of households, we are not unique. It is really obvious. Let me give you a picture of my household. If Linda cuts her finger in the kitchen or hurts herself in any other way, my kids run around like ants at a picnic. One grabs ice, another calls 911, one calls the blood banks all through the Midwest to make sure they are on call, just in case. That's the reaction when Linda hurts herself. On the other hand, I can have a limb dangling, (laughs) gasping for my last breath, and the response that I get is, Dad, quit being so dramatic. (laughs) I do admit I tend towards the dramatic, but it takes something really dramatic to get compassion out of my family. I was working in the attic one time, and I fell through the drywall as I was working through it. I was falling 14 feet, stuck out my arms, and caught myself in the joist. And I was hanging there, yelling for help, and Linda came to the door. Instead of giving me a ladder, she yelled to the kids, 
kids, you got to come see this one. Now, I'm going to give her a break because there's a lot of reason for her to have that reaction. When there's a discussion or disagreement between Linda and I, the kids observe it. Linda speaks, and if I get defensive, the kids will get all over me. Dad, you need to be quiet and listen. Mom's right, you know. If I try to make my defense, they close ranks around mom, and I get those stares, those, that was too harsh stares, Dad. It has been very clear to me from the beginning that my role in our family and in our culture as a man would look very different than Linda's role as a woman. It is definitely not more difficult. It is certainly not more important. But it is very different. Since we spent a Sunday on women, today on Father's Day, we're going to talk about the role of men. And the first thing I need to say is that I am offended I am. I have stronger adjectives that I'd like to use that I think would make the point better, but the strongest one I can use here in the church is that I am offended, and so I'm going to say I'm really, really, really offended. I'm offended at how we, men, are portrayed on television and in advertising. If an alien came to earth and learned what men are like from television and advertising, they would learn that you will lie to your wives Ignore your children, forsake the needs of your families in order to get a peek at a good-looking woman, drink a beer, receive a 52-inch big-screen TV, or even eat a bag of Doritos. Watch your Super Bowl ads. You'll see who you are in the media's eyes. And I am offended. The betrayal of us men is that our greatest goal in life is for us to capture our free time. To sit by ourselves, accomplish nothing, drink a beer, eat, and look at good women, good-looking women or sports. That's the picture that is being painted in our culture. And we laugh at those ads. But I don't think we should. I think we should be offended. We laugh at them because we've lost some of our vision and our passion and our understanding of the incredible calling that God has put on a man's life. And that betrayal, it, it offends me. It offends me for two reasons, though. One, it offends me for how untrue it is. But also, it offends me for how true it is and should not be. When I am at the gym, I listen to men rattle off statistics about every player on every sports team, about every sports. And I have to tell you, as I listen to this, I wonder to myself, how much time does it take how much time does it take in front of a television or listening to sports talking heads to know that many statistics about that many players? And I always wonder about my, to myself, do you talk about your life that way? Do you talk about your wife that way? Do you talk about your children with as much passion as you are just now talking about your fantasy football team? And I don't hear that. I'm watching men in our culture take longer and longer to age out of childish behavior and become men. I'm offended, and yes, I'm concerned for many reasons, some cultural, some political, some individual, all pleasing to the devil. We are losing God's great vision and God's great calling on men to be leaders, warriors, and cultural architects. God's great calling on us to be men. Today, I want to redeem our passion and purpose as men. I want to recapture and recast and lay before you the great vision, 
passion and purpose and power God has for you, man. Every message in this series is launched from the creation account we have in Genesis, so we're going to start there again today. Andrew showed us that it's always been them. From the beginning, it's always been them. Them, male and female. God created them in his image on day six. And as we moved into chapter two of Genesis two, God gives us some detail of what and how creation of the previous six days, how did it actually unroll? So he launches, as Andrew showed us, he says, this is how creation went. And then he starts to roll back and say, here's how it actually rolled out. So I want to look at one interesting comment in the narrative about those six days. And it's found in Genesis two, four through five. It says this, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field has yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. See, creation's been completed, but it's not been growing. It's not even fully tilled and planted yet. It's not fully sown. It's not flourishing because there's no man yet to cultivate it. We see in the creation account that there was a special role for a man to cultivate creation. And without that cultivation, then creation does not flourish. It's a powerful role. God's creation, our culture, our families, our spheres of influence will not flourish, cannot flourish unless men do what men are created to do, and that is to cultivate. There are two meanings of cultivate. There's cultivate in the way of to prepare for flourishing. That means like tilling, fertilizing the ground, digging the rows, turning over the dirt. That's all in preparation before something's even planted. Nothing will ever be what it's meant to be unless the ground is first prepared that it will be set in. Then there's a second cultivate. That is after it has been planted, after it has been set in the ground, it still needs to be fostered and encouraged and protected. See, once something sprouts, it still needs cultivating in order to flourish, to be all that it's created to be. Man is to cultivate creation. We are to cultivate our wives, our children, our families, our spheres of influence, our culture, and without our cultivation, there nothing will be all that God created it to be. A very important clarification, a role of this cultivator. It has no sense of ruling as a king. None. It has every sense of giving your life as a servant. And that statement right there sounds so unfair. It sounds so hard. It sounds so not fun. Great. My life is to give my life away as a servant for everyone else. And I'm here to stand tall and say to you that my only point of this message is, yes, that is your life. And it is an awesome life if you'll live it. There is so much joy. In fact, I'll tell you that anyone, no matter what anyone else is telling you, no matter what anything else is telling you, it is the only place that you will find fulfillment in your life because you're a man and that's what you're made for. 
And if we look at it closely, we realize, you know, the call to discipleship has the same challenge and the same reward. In Matthew 16, 24, the call to discipleship is this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Then the reward, verse 25, for whoever wishes to save his life loses it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Men, our call, it looks the same. It's in cultivating life in others and all around us that we will find our life in return. And men, we've been pulled away from our life source. We have. We've been told that life is in our free time. It's in our comfort. It's in our pleasure. It's in our entertainment. And so everything we do is aimed towards that, and it's a lie. And we've yielded our call to be leaders and our call to serve. And you know, I tried this once, and it doesn't work. I did. I was full of self-pity one time. I was an elder at the church. I was serving at the church. We were doing a relocation. I was doing all this stuff around the family. I was just doing, I'm just going, you know what? I'm not getting mine. I'm tired. I give and give and give. So I decided to change. Just decided, you know what? On the way home tonight, I'm getting a newspaper. Yep, there was a time when men read newspapers. <laughs> got a newspaper, got back in my hammock. My kids, my family kind of looked at me like, wow, usually I would drive up the driveway, immediately play in the backyard with the kids. I'm like, no, I'm going to read the newspaper. And I just started laying back, started taking care of me. And I did it for like three or four days. And I want to give you a warning. Number one thing that happened is sin and thoughts that I'd put away for decades came rushing back into my mind. And then one morning, and this doesn't sound very holy, but one morning I got up about 3 a.m. to go to the bathroom. And I'm walking to the bathroom and I realized I'm in trouble. And got down on my knees and said, hey, God, can I come back? Can I come back to my role? I'm telling you guys, there's no life in taking for a man. There just isn't. There's no life in being served for a man. And we all, all we have to do is open our eyes and look around. Our wives, our families, our culture, and all of creation, I would submit to you, we men are all struggling because we have, sur have surrendered our God-given, life-giving roles as cultivators. Okay, so that's the call. Be cultivators to our wives families and culture. But what exactly does that look like? So once we walk out of here today, we need a picture. What does it look like to be a cultivator? Well, there's no straight how-to section in the Bible on this. However, the Bible gives us some incredibly strong imagery of what it looks like to be a father and what it looks like to be a man. I want to look at three of those pictures of manhood and fatherhood today to see if in them we can't reproduce some of the vision of what it looks like to be a godly, kingdom-building, wife-encouraging, family-nurturing, culturally impactful man. It is Father's Day, but this message is not just for fathers. 
This is not just a father's message. This is a message for men. In fact, the first story that I'm going to take us through is not going to be about a biological father, and yet it is about a man who carried incredible influence, even though he wasn't a biological father. Every man has a sphere of influence. Every man is a father to others. Every man has people in their lives they are called to cultivate. That's just the truth. The first story is about Elijah and Elisha, and it's found in 2 Kings. We're not going to turn there because I'm going to be going through three passages. In the interest of time, I hope you're taking something notes. Something jumps out of you, write it down and go back and look at it later. But this, this story is found in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. In the interest of time, we won't look at it. Elijah is a famous, powerful prophet of the northern kingdom. And in this passage, Elijah knows that his time on earth has come to an end. He has been told by God that he will soon be taken up from the earth. And so that is happening. And this story we're about to look at is the story of the passing of the baton between Elijah and Elisha. And I'll try to be clear as I say those two things. Passing the baton between Elijah, who's about to be taken up, and Elisha, who comes after him. Elijah was not Elisha's biological father. And yet, at an emotionally critical part of this story, we see Elisha cry out to Elijah, My father, my father. Even though not a biological father, this man had incredible influence on Elisha. And as we see this passing of the baton, we see the powerful picture of a father and a man. Elijah's life as a prophet is coming to an end. Elijah knows he's about to take it up, and so he says to Elisha, the man who's coming after him, you don't want to be here for this part. I need you to stay back. Because I'm going to go forward, I need you to stay back. And Elijah says, I'm not staying back. I will not leave your side. Then about 50 other prophets who know about what's going to happen walk up to Elisha and they say to him, hey, you know, your master, he's going to be taken up today. And Elijah says, I know, I'm going with him. Be quiet. And that's the vision we see. Elijah says, I will not leave you two more times. Elijah comes to Elisha and says, Elisha, you need to stay behind for this part. I don't want you to come for this part. And Elisha says, I'm not leaving your sides. And the 50 other prophets decide to stay back. But Elijah goes forward and Elisha goes with him. And then we see this stirring story where he goes forward and he has to cross the river and Elijah takes off his mantle, his cloak, his outer cloak. He rolls it up and then he strikes the river and the water splits left and right. And he and Elisha together walk through it. And then it's time for Elijah to be taken up. And there's one more conversation. Elijah turns to Elijah and he says, tell me, in verse 9, what I can do for you before I am taken up. What is it that you will not leave my side for? What is it that you're asking me for? I'm about to leave you. What is it that you want? And Elisha says in the end of verse 9, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit." From the man Elijah looked to as a father, he asked one thing. If I can take anything from you, if I can carry anything forward from you, I want to carry your faith and your ministry. That's what he wanted from this man. And Elijah tells Elijah it's not a gift he can give. God will have to determine if his request will be granted. And then in a
And he picks up the mantle of Elijah, his father, and he rolls it up just like his dad did. He turns around and he strikes the water again. And the water splits just like it did for his father. And he walks through just like he did with his father. And the 50 prophets that stayed behind are watching this and they are amazed. And they see, and it says in verse 15, the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is now resting on Elisha. And they went to meet with him and bowed the ground before him. And Elisha goes forward to do even more miracles and wonders than Elijah did. In fact, Elisha goes forward with the blessing that he asked by watching the ministry and the faith of the man he called father. He goes forward to do more miracles and wonders than anyone else in the scriptures except for Jesus himself. Elisha got what he wanted so badly, a double portion of his father's spiritual life and ministry. And in this story, we see a critical role of a man to give our children, to give the people we influence, to give our culture a spiritual light. Elisha sees a man's life and what he sees he must have. He refuses to leave the man's side until he has a double portion of the faith in the ministry that he observed in the man that he loved and the ministry that his father had. And we men are to live lives that are those to follow in the same way that those who follow us look at us and more than they want our financial inheritance, more than they want anything else from us. They look at us and say, I want more than anything else. I want your faith. And I want a double portion of it. And I want to walk forward in your ministry. Bill Johnson says this so well. We must live faith. I don't think this is quoted exactly right, but you'll get the idea. Bill Johnson says, we must live a faith that li- where our lives, are, are, are their, our ceiling becomes their floor. That's the call on a man's life. So that my ceiling becomes his floor. And the role of a father, the God-given of a man, is to live in a way to build a solid spiritual foundation, not so that he can arrive at where I've arrived at, but so that he can stand on what I built and run by me as he is right now. And my role is to cheer him on as he passes me by. And for the next generation to say, you go, you took ground that I couldn't dream of taking. It's a beautiful picture of a man. I am a wealthy, white American man. I don't say that with arrogance, I just say that positionally. I am a wealthy, white American man, which means I've had access to everything the world has to offer. I have had access, I've had authority, I've access to people, I have access to the best medical care, I have access to the best um, schools, the best education for my children, the best environment for my children. I've had access to it all, and none of it was enough. None of it could protect my children or impact the people I loved. I learned later than I should have, if I do not leave my loved one's faith, then I have left them exposed and unprotected. I want to tell you, I must tell you men, if you do not cultivate faith into your wives, into your children, into your sphere of influence, you will leave them all exposed because nothing but faith holds nothing. One great role of a father of every man is to cultivate faith. If men do not cultivate faith, then wives, children, creation 
and culture just cannot flourish. The next story I want to look at is to help get a picture of what it looks like for a man to roll as cultivator, in his role as cultivator is found in Mark chapter 9. Jesus is coming down from the mountain after his transfiguration. He comes upon a disturbance and a crowd is gathered and his disciples and some Pharisees are arguing and they all come up to Jesus and Jesus says, what's going on? And then in chapter seven, or in verse 17, it's a brave warrior father who finally speaks to Jesus. And he says this in chapter, or verses 17 and 18. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. To have a demonized child in that culture would have been devastating to the entire family. It would have been embarrassing as people would see the man and the son and avoid them at all costs. It would have been a disgrace as people would have judged the man and his family as to what they had done to deserve such a great punishment from God. It would have been devastating financially as this father would have had to spend so much time taking care of his son that it left it very difficult to win and fight for financially for the rest of his family. It would have been emotionally draining as hopelessness and helplessness tried to swallow up not just the sick son, but the family that loved him as well. And Jesus asks him, how long has it been like this? And we don't get an exact answer, but we do get a response that he says, the father says, from childhood. Notice, he does not say all childhood. He says from child, which means this man's no longer a child. He's come out of his childhood. This struggle's not been months. It's been at least years and maybe even decades. And the father goes on in verse 22. It has often thrown him into the fire and the water to try and kill him. Question, who do you think was there to pull out that son when Satan threw him into the fire and tried to burn him to death? Who do you think was there time after time after time, year after year after year, to go into the water after his son and pull him back out? Don't you think it's a good guess that it was this father? Suffering after suffering, sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, sorrow after sorrow, but the father is still there advocating for his child. The father never gives up. And then this gut-wrenching plea, take pity on us. Help us. There's no him. In the father's eyes, there's no distinction between his son and him. In the father's eyes, there's only us. Help us. Jesus challenges the father. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible through him who believes. And then the sacrifice of every last remaining piece of pride, the sacrifice of any dignity the man still had, there's only his son in mind as the father screams in brokenness, humility, need, and love. I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. And in this story, all you fathers are released from anything that you feel you're carrying that is not good enough to help your family. There is nothing. I know some of you have pain from your childhood. That's not who you are. That is what you have to fight through. But there is delivery from every one of those things and you get to bring it to Jesus and it can be left behind. Don't stay in that. 
keep moving forward. The man did not have perfect faith, but he must have had a lot of faith. He had enough to know he could not save his son. He had enough faith to take his son to the only one who could. And he did not have perfect faith, but he had enough faith to never give up. And in this man's story, we see another great role of a man being a tireless, unrelenting, faithful advocate for wives, children, and others. One of my children struggled with an illness for many, many years. We tried everything, everything. And like I said, I had access to the best medical care. I had access to the best people. I had access to the best counsel. We had everything, but nothing worked. And I was out of town after years and years and years of struggle. And I was in New York, and I got a phone call from this child. And another failure had happened. Another setback had happened. And to be honest with you, I was just brokenhearted. I was tired. I was out of strength. And I responded to this child, and I said, I don't have any more ideas. I don't have any more plans. I don't know what to do. And immediately I heard this heartbreaking, desperate cry on the other side. If you give up on me, I have nothing left. And I did what a father's called to do. I said, give me 30 minutes. I'll call you back with something. Because a father's job is just never, never give up. And my child just needed to stay and stand no matter where you go, I will stand with you. And that's the role of a man. That's the role of a father. Men, sometimes the plans run out. Sometimes the power is gone. Sometimes it's not, listen to this, sometimes it's not about what you can do. It's the only thing you can't do, and that is give up. And that's a great calling. There's a great calling on every man to cultivate perseverance and steadfastness and, yes, long-suffering. We have a great honor and privilege to be called on to never give up, and our life is in that calling. And I want you to listen to this. Men, often your life will not be found in the results of your life. Your calling will be found in the fight itself. Never give up. Don't think your calling and all of your values found in the results. It's found in the fight itself. So just fight and never give up. Which leads us to our last story, the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. I was in a Bible study one morning and a man walked in on, and he looked like he'd been up all night because he had been. He shared how he had spent the night on the phone with his adult son who was lost in his journey of addiction and drugs and alcohol. His son was in a desperate place and called the father. And the father now realized that there was nothing he could do to save him. And so he had walked into that Bible study this morning and he said, I sent a letter to my son last night and it was with an airline ticket. And it just had one simple note, come home, I'm waiting for you here. And he wept and said, I don't know if I'll ever see my son alive again. And he didn't. I didn't know. I don't actually know what happened in that story. You could taste the man's pain, heartbreak, and sorrow, the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son, it's not a real son. It's a story Jesus gives us to give us another picture of what it's like to be a real father, what it's like to be a real man. 
A man has two sons. The youngest son comes to the father in Luke 15, 12. Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Now we have to understand, in this culture at that time, that ask would have been the biggest slap in the face any father could ever have. What they left behind was always their inheritance. It never was split because it was an honor of when the father died that it be put in. And this son was coming to his father and saying, basically what I really want from you is what I'm going to get when you die. Can we pretend that you're just dead? It required the father's permission in humility and sacrifice to give permission to this. And this father, Jesus is telling this story, this father gives that permission and the inheritance is split. The son goes off and we know the story. He squanders the living and he finds himself hungry and he loses everything, finds himself hungry and he has a thought in verse 17. Well, When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. You see, this son, he had lost every hope of returning to the father as a son. Wasn't even in his grid any longer. He just said, I just hope he'll take me back as a servant. There's no way I can go back as a son, but maybe he'll take me back as a servant. And so the son does that, and he comes back, prepares a long speech. But as he's approaching his father's house, before he could get to his drawn-out apology, in verse 20, the father runs to him. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Notice, compassion and forgiveness preceded the apology. Didn't come after it, it preceded it. The son still tries to apologize in verse 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father doesn't want to hear it. He's too busy celebrating. But the father's too busy celebrating in verse 22. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill it. We got a party. And all of those things, that ring, that robe, that celebration, those were all signs of sonhood. The son had been fully welcomed back with every right as a son. And the father exclaims, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Fathers, men are to cultivate compassion, forgiveness, and redemption. The child you loved as a little one and loved today may reject you, deny you, accuse you, even act like you are dead to them and leave you physically and emotionally. It will hurt. The question is, what will you do while they're away? You will use it for one thing or another. Will you use it to store up pain and anger and bitterness, or will you store up compassion, forgiveness, and hope of someday, the redemption that will come? A father, man, a man waits, perseveres, And loves because his goal is not that he redeems his pain. His goal is that the pain of his children and his family and the people around him is redeemed. That's a great calling. That's three snapshots. Three pictures from the scriptures. On what it looks like to be a father. What it looks like to be a man. Cultivating faith. Live so others want our faith more than anything else. Thank you. Cultivate perseverance and long-suffering. 
So our lives are not in the results, but in the fight, because men are called to never give up. Cultivate compassion, forgiveness, and redemption, putting the redemption of others' pains ahead of our own. Now do you see why I'm offended by the pictures in media? Now do you see why I think you should be too? I hope you are fired up since the garden God has given us and you, men, the role of cultivating creation, and we do not embrace our roles, then our wives, our children, and our culture will never flourish as it can, never flourish as it should. That is a great reason for getting up every morning, isn't it? That's something to live for. It is a great calling, so great that I hope that you see that you don't stand a chance of doing this alone. Your first role and step as a man is to start every day at the feet of Jesus. Because I am telling you, this great calling will only live to the extent that you live at the feet of Jesus. Or it will die at your own weaknesses. It's just that simple. It will either start and live or it will end and die. Man, the call is not easy, but it's glorious. And I want to end the picture with the prize of living out our call. If I sound like I've done this father thing, this man thing perfectly well, I haven't. I've had trials in every one of the categories and failures in every one of the categories that I have laid out today. But I did keep getting up. And I found out that life was as God promises. Life is in the fight of a man. I want to share with you two of the greatest treasures in my life, two of the greatest rewards of the life of a man. See this statue? This is from my daughter. It's probably $1.99, I don't know. But this is the daughter that called in New York. And she presented me this statue, and it's a little warrior, and on the shield is a sun and a, and a moon. And it came with a note. It said, thank you, Dad for fighting for me day and night and never giving up. These are some of the letters that I've received over my journey as a man and as a father. There's a bunch of them here that I received from my wife and kids. They're letters of my life and my calling that confirm that I'm a man and I'm a cultivator of life of others. If you come from my car, I'll argue about it but you'll get it. If you come for my house, I'll fight you for it, but you can have it. But these, you have to kill me to take these from me because these are the testimony of the honor that I carry as a father and as a man. Will you stand with me? I feel tremendously led that God wants to bless us as men this morning. And so I'm gonna ask you guys, I'm gonna ask every man that wants it just to come forward to be blessed. It doesn't mean you failed in anything, that's not the point. I feel like God is saying that he wants to lay a new anointing on the men of this church to carry out the calling that is on our lives. And so I'm asking you if you're willing, just men, come forward and I want to carry this blessing. I am not gifted in giving this blessing, but for this morning, this is my call. And this is what God has asked me to do. And I want to give it to you. And I think we'll fail if we don't go forward, with, if we go forward without this blessing. So come on forward. And you guys, just get wherever you can. This is awesome. Thank you. And just come as close as you can. And that's fine. If you can't go all the way up front, I'd ask you to put a uh, shoulder on a man around you. 
And this is a beautiful picture, guys. Look at the power. Look at the power in this room. Look at the impact in this room. So let's just add God, ask God to set us free in an anointing that we have never experienced before and the honor that he has granted us as men. Lord, I want to pray for each and every one of these men. I want to ask you to release in them everything that you laid in them from the beginning of the foundations of the earth, that you saw them when you created them in the womb of their mothers and you said, this is the man this man will be. And I've got this picture, Lord, of you just wanting to release all those blessings. Lord, I want to take any fatherhoods, hurts that exist in men that make them doubt whether or not they can be this kind of man. And I want to release every one of them because they're a lie. It is true. It is true. It is a reason to hurt but it is not an excuse and you can release them right now and you will cover those things. You went to the cross to cover those things and father wounds are no different. This can be covered and called out of men. Nobody up front here is less than because of the father they had. It's just not true. Release every man into the power and the promise that is theirs. And father, I do. I want you to you tell us that the true circumcision, that meant the ones who are really going to follow you are the ones that are circumcised in their hearts. Lord, I want you to move into the hearts of these men and I want you to call them forward to worship in spirit and in truth. I want you to call them to put aside the praises of men and look instead to receive the glory of God that is laid in their hearts. I believe big in this gathering, Lord. And I pray that you release that blessing now in Jesus' name.